Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a urologist specializing in bladder cancer shares the exciting new treatment he has to offer some patients. You need to be able to look at the bladder with your you know, normal white light that we're all used to, but what you do is you just flip back and forth between the blue light and the white light and you can really make a difference and pick up all these little cancers that we weren't picking up before. A microbiologist talks about tick-borne diseases, including Lyme disease. As soon as we come from outdoor activities, if we can check our body, we can remove the tick, there is, I would say, 99% chance that you will not have Lyme disease. A doctor from the team that isolated the rubella virus and went on to develop an antibody test and a vaccine in the 1960s talks about rubella and the measles. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center, I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore tick-borne diseases with a microbiologist. Then, we'll hear from a doctor who helped isolate the rubella virus back in the 1960s. But first, a urologist explains the new treatment he can offer some patients with bladder cancer. A new cystoscopy procedure can help doctors identify bladder cancer cells, and here to tell us about it is Dr. Joseph Jacob. He's a urologist at Upstate with expertise in urologic oncology, and he takes care of many patients with bladder cancer. Thank you for being here, Dr. Jacob. Thank you for having me. Now, you're going to tell us about this blue light cystoscopy, but I feel like we need to understand a little about bladder cancer first, because this is really for patients with a certain type or stage of bladder cancer, right? Correct. Yeah, so there's many different types of bladder cancer. The most common is what we call superficial bladder cancer. That means it's not invading into the muscle of the bladder. And these are managed with looking into the bladder with a camera and scraping these tumors as they come back. The problem with these tumors is they tend to be not just in one spot of the bladder. Uh, it's in multiple spots of the bladder, so multifocal. And they tend to recur. They tend to come back pretty frequently over the patient's life. So if you see one and have one and have it removed, you still have to be checked to make sure more don't come back? Yeah, unfortunately okay. the odds are it's going to come back. Now, do bladder cancers originate in the, are we talking about bladder cancers that originate in the bladder or are these cancers that started somewhere else and, and moved to the bladder? These are, these are pure bladder cancers. So they, they come from the lining of the bladder and they originate in that, that uh, lining of the bladder called the urothelium. And so most bladder cancers are urothelial? Correct. But yeah. there's, there's, there are some other kinds. But there's, there's some the other kinds that are rare. Um, by far the majority are these uh, bladder cancers that start in the lining of the bladder, but there are definitely very rare things that we see that we manage. Now, when, when bladder cancer is discovered, uh, how do you, can you visualize and tell whether it's invasive or non-invasive or do you have to do some sort of a biopsy to determine that? It's How a good question, work? exactly. So you, you can't tell with the naked eye if this is invasive into the, in the muscle and all we're talking about is just microscopic invasion. So what oh. we do is we scrape the, the tumor 
with our special instruments uh, that we do through a camera that we put in the bladder. And we send it to pathology. They look under the microscope and they tell us if this is invasive or not. The reason why it's a big deal to find out if this is invasive, invasive excuse me, is that if it's invasive, it has a much higher chance of spreading outside the bladder. Okay. All right. And then that goes to whatever stage the cancer's in, right? Correct. Yeah. So if it's invasive, it's a higher stage and more chance that it could become metastatic or spread outside the bladder. So let's talk about the symptoms of bladder cancer. How would someone know that they have bladder cancer? Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of help in that area. And once people start having really bad symptoms, it's almost too late. Um, but uh, the, the most common thing would be blood in the urine. And you're, either you'll see it, either the patient will see it, where the urine looks pink or red-tinged, uh, or your primary care doctor will just check a urine and see that there's microscopic blood in the urine. And then they would send, send the patient to someone like me that would you know, explore. So blood in the urine is not normal. Nope, not so, at all. Okay. Now, and then there's no, like, pain associated. You wouldn't, there's no other early symptom, really. You know, sometimes people will have bladder symptoms, urinary frequency, urgency, and um, sometimes that'll be a sign of bladder cancer, but by far the most common thing would be blood in the urine. All right. So if someone is uh, referred to you um, because their physician thinks, you know, or found blood in the urine, what are the sorts of things that you would do with that patient to determine whether it's cancer? We would do two things. So uh, the first thing is we would look in the bladder with a camera. It's called cystoscopy. And the reason is that the, li- the lining of the bladder uh, is on the inside of the bladder, and it's sort of like colonoscopy. You have to actually take a look on the inside of the bladder uh, with a camera. Uh, these tumors can be small and uh, subtle, and you wouldn't necessarily pick them up on a CT scan. Now, the second thing would be, uh, you know, the blood in the urine could be coming from anywhere along the urinary tract, from the kidneys to the, the drainage tubes of the kidneys. And so we would also get a CT, a special kind of CT scan that would look at the kidneys and the drainage system of the kidneys. The cystoscopy you mentioned, is that done in the office or is that done in an operating room? In the office, we would just take a... So it's a kind yeah. of an in and out when you come for your visit. Okay. Yeah, not as not as uh, horrible as it sounds. Yeah. All right. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate urologist Dr. Joseph Jacob about cystoscopy and bladder cancer. So tell us about blue light cystoscopy. How does, how does this work, and how is it different from plain cystoscopy? So this is a, a very exciting thing, and I'm excited to be here to talk about it with you guys. It is a new technology in bladder cancer that solves a, a pretty big problem that we've that we've had for years. Uh, the biggest thing with this superficial type of bladder cancer is that it tends to be a field defect, which means whatever happened to certain cells in the bladder happened to all the cells in the bladder. So very commonly you have one bladder cancer in one part of the bladder and you'll find little satellite lesions all around the bladder. The other problem is that this, these, these tumors can be very grueling on the patient because they tend to come back and the patient over their lifetime can keep going back to the OR, keep getting scrape, scrape, uh, the scrapage procedure. So this blue light procedure, what it does is it picks up these cancers that we weren't 
picking up before. So the there's a special medicine that gets placed in the bladder. It's called cisfu, and that's the blue light. That's where the blue light name comes from. And the tumor cells preferentially take in this medicine, and we have a special kind of camera. Then we turn on the light, the blue light, and uh, these tumors pop up. And the amazing thing is a lot of times you look at it with just normal white light, you don't see anything, and then all of a sudden you put the blue light on, and all, you see all these satellite lesions. So the CISPU is the medication um, that, is it injected into the bladder or you take it by mouth? It's a uh, medicine that's put in the bladder through a catheter. Okay. And so the cells react to it in some way that makes them, you're able to see them in a different way. Exactly. Okay. So does this replace regular cystoscopy or do you still need regular cystoscopy? along with the blue light. Well, you you the blue light uh, camera has both. And so you need, you know, you need to be able to look at the bladder with your, you know, normal white light that we're all used to. But what you do is you just flip back and forth between the blue light and the white light and you can really make a difference and pick up all these little cancers that we weren't picking up before. The reason why that's important is two reasons. You may pick up an aggressive cancer that was missed. And we know that if we miss these aggressive cancers, they can become invasive, which is what we're really trying to avoid. The other thing is we can pick up these cancers that we weren't catching and, and hopefully save the patient another trip to back to the OR for the scraping procedure. So it oh, cuts so you can down. take care of them right then. Exactly, right. So you can take care of more mm-hmm. lesions that we were missing before that would have made the patient come back sooner. And so they've actually done pretty good studies on this and the, the these the results were that they're picking up more cancers and more aggressive cancers so that's better for the life of the patient uh, from a cancer standpoint and the other thing is that patients are, are not going back to the OR as much so obviously better from uh, f- from that perspective as well yeah easier for the patient too exactly. so so you're able during the cystoscopy procedure to then if you, if things show up in the blue light you can um, remove them right then Exactly, exactly, yeah. Okay. Now, we talked about it's uh, urothelial um, carcinoma is by far um, the prevalent type of bladder cancer, but the other ones that are really rare, the squamous cell and the adenocarcinoma, do those show up under the blue light as well? They do. That's a good question. So uh, the the way the medicine works is uh, it it gets um, taken up by these cancer cells because these cancer cells are needing more blood supply, abnormal amount of blood supply and nutrition. And all it does is this medicine just gets taken up by cells that are more active. And it's a pretty neat, uh, it's a pretty neat thing if you want to go on YouTube and just look it up. You turn on the light and all of a sudden you see a big red spot. It's pretty obvious. It's hard for people to miss. So is the blue light cystoscopy, is that if someone came to you with suspected bladder cancer, is that the thing you would do first? Is that the type of cystoscopy you you would do first? So we would we would look at their bladder just with white light in the in the in the clinic uh, with a quick camera procedure, but if we were suspecting that there's an abnormality, then we would take them to the OR and do blue light and make sure that we if we're gonna do a procedure a scraping procedure that we're gonna basically clean clean the bladder and start from you know square one. Okay. Are there risks um, associated with this that patients need to be aware of? You know, not not really. Uh, the medicine is 
pretty well tolerated. Uh, there's really not a lot of uh, long-term side effects, except for if somebody has like a rare allergy to it. Um, but 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 it doesn't really add any risks to the to the patient uh, for doing this extra procedure, and it ho- and adds a whole lot of benefit in my opinion. Uh, the only downside is that you do have to have a catheter right before the procedure to have this medicine put in. That's the only difference that the patient would, would notice. Okay. And it's covered by health insurance? It's covered by health insurance, exactly. Uh, the, the You know, what I'm really proud of is it's, it's not necessarily like a moneymaker. Uh, it's just better care for patients. And I was happy that Upstate invested in this. And, and, and they invested in it not because they knew that they were going to make money. They actually knew that they would probably lose money on it, but they wanted to provide, you know, the best care possible for our, our patients. So. And again, like we've talked, the the earlier you find the bladder cancer, the quicker you can have it treated and removed and, and get on with your life, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk about the treatments. Um, what sorts of treatments are there? Um, if you're able to remove it, is that all that has to be done? No, so it it all depends on on what uh, what kind of bladder cancer you have. Is it aggressive? Is it non aggressive? Is it invasive? Non invasive? Um, but but in general, if we're doing the superficial bladder cancer, we do that scraping procedure with the camera, and pretty commonly we'll put a chemotherapy inside the bladder that sits for about an hour or two after the procedure, and gets removed after the before the patient leaves the hospital. And that's been shown to decrease the chance that this, these tumors come back. So that would be step one. And then depending on the aggressive nature of the procedure, we have tons of tons of things that we do in the clinic. We put some kinds of immunotherapies in the bladder, some types of chemotherapies in the bladder, and it would be like a course that the patient would get in our clinic. There's also, if that sort of thing fails, we have multiple clinical trials that we're, that we're involved in that we're offering patients to help save these bladders, especially patients that are really, you know, can't tolerate a removal of the bladder or really just can't, you know, come to grips with losing their bladder. Because if it's severe enough, it's invaded the muscle, you may have to remove the bladder. And Exactly. So the standard of care for invasive bladder cancer is removal of the bladder, and obviously that's what we're trying to avoid. All right. Well, now, do we know what causes bladder cancer? We, we think it's environmental, mainly. Uh, of course, all cancers have a little bit of a genetic uh, uh, you know, part to them. But you know, the most common thing that we see would be smoking. It's a toxin. Um, it gets filtered in the urine. It can cause damage to the cells. But other types of environmental uh, toxins like uh, dyes, paints, rubbers uh, that lots of people get exposed to. So this may be something you were exposed to in childhood or young adulthood or whatever, right? That's that's true, yeah. Now, did I read correctly that the average age at the time of diagnosis is like the 70s? Mm-hmm. So these are mostly older people that are affected by bladder cancer. It is. More commonly seen older uh, in patients that are s- smokers and more commonly seen in men. Um, but, you know, that's just most common. Unfortunately, we see younger and younger patients and... Yeah. Why uh, why does it disproportionately affect men? Good question. Uh, we maybe men smoke more commonly. Uh, maybe they're exposed to more environmental uh, uh, toxins. 
uh, through their work or jobs, but but it may just be a you know one of those things that men just got lucky with. It seems like if we aren't certain about the causes, then how do we know how to prevent it other than don't smoke? Are there other things people can do to prevent their chances of developing bladder cancer? You know, uh, there's been there's been some some research in that area. Uh, besides avoiding toxins, there's really been nothing that's so healthy, shown healthy like, living in general. I mean, I'm always a big fan of healthy living and 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 healthy diet and avoiding you know all the you know, toxins that we ingest and all the, the the weird stuff and the foods that we don't that we don't realize. But nothing solid from a research standpoint that I could say, you know, avoid this or don't do that. If you have bladder cancer in your family, if you had a, a grandparent or a, an older parent who developed it, does that, is there a genetic link or would, would that put you at a higher risk necessarily? Not necessarily. Um, we always get suspicious. We always ask about the family history. Uh, but bladder cancer, unlike some of these other cancers, hasn't really shown a big genetic um, it's been more related to uh, toxins and environmental exposures. All right. Well, that's good to know. Well, thank you so much for telling us about this blue light cystoscopy. It's exciting. My pleasure. Thank you. My guest has been Upstate Urologist Dr. Joseph Jacob. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about diseases carried by ticks. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our topic today is ticks and tick-borne diseases. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Upstate microbiologist Dr. Saravanan Thangamani. He's a SUNY Empire Innovation Professor and Director of the SUNY Center for Environmental Health and Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Thangamani. Thank you. I appreciate having you me here. How long have we known that ticks carried diseases that could harm humans? Well, uh, to be to be precise, uh, since the 1900s, uh, we have been identifying uh, tick-borne pathogens, and uh, uh, like for example, Borrelia, the Lyme disease agent, was uh, discovered in 1980s, and then beginning 20s to now, multiple different pathogens uh, that are transmitted by ticks have been identified, primarily in the United States. So it seems pr- pretty recent that we've learned that ticks can carry diseases. Yes, we discovered recently all these pathogens, but that doesn't mean that they were not here before 1900s, but we just didn't have enough tools to identify those disease-causing pathogens or germs. Interesting. Um, how many kinds of ticks are there? There are hundreds of species of ticks, but, but however, not all ticks carry or not all ticks uh, transmit the disease-causing germs to humans or pets or veterinary animals. Uh, I would say there's, lar- there's about 20 to 50 different species that are of medical importance. When I say medical importance, means that that causes significant human disease or veterinary diseases. So I've seen pictures of, t- I mean, they're small. They're, uh, I've seen pictures of 
ticks that are like a poppy seed size? Are they all that small? Not all of the ticks are that small, particularly ticks uh, have multiple different life stages. Uh, so if you want, I can go in detail about the tick life cycle right now. Is that, you know, when a fed adult female lays thousands of eggs, they all become larvae. Then larvae then have to find uh, a mammal to feed on. And then once they feed on, they drop off, they molt into the next stage, which is called nymphs. And then the nymphs then have to find a mammalian host and then feed on. A, mamma a mammalian host would be uh, a deer or a dog or a human, human. or any Exactly, mammal. exactly. Okay. Any mammal that, uh, you know, different ticks have different uh, preference to feed on which animal they would like to feed on. It's like us having different cuisines that we like. Ticks have preference as well. And, and if, if they don't find a host, they die? They wait. They, they wait, wait until, until they, they find. find. And that's why tick life cycle in nature takes about two to three years to complete this one full cycle from eggs to nymphs to larvae. Sorry, eggs, larvae to nymphs to adults. It takes about three, two to three years in nature. So the larval stages are the one that are the tiniest one. The nymphs, they are, I would say, less than the size of poppy seeds. It's very difficult to find. And nymphs are maybe twice the size. And adults, it's visible to find. And that's one reason why we don't often get bitten by adult ticks because it's easy to find our human body, that we can pick it out. But uh, unlike uh, larvals and nymphs are really tiny, so we can't find it easily. But that's, I'm talking about the deer ticks. However, if you go to lone star ticks that are preferenced, that are found primarily in the southern United States, they are really big. And, you know, they are probably three or four times the size of a deer tick. And they take more blood as well. Okay. So are they a threat? Or I guess what I want to understand is how do they get the germ to begin with that is a risk to humans? Are they born infected with whatever causes Lyme disease? Okay, so I can answer in two parts, particularly for the Lyme disease. The, the, let's say the mother to uh, baby ticks, which is the larval ticks, there is no transoverial transmission. When I mean to say transoverial transmission, it is the, uh, the transmission of germs from mom to the babies. The babies here are the larvae. Uh, there's less than 1% chance that to happen. But however, for the viruses, there is almost 90% chance that a mom, if it contains the virus, it would transmit the virus to the babies, to the larval tick. So imagine that one adult female uh, infected with the virus, if it lays thousands of eggs, let's say if it lays 5,000 eggs, almost 4,000 eggs will be positive for the virus. So it depends on what germ we are talking about, but it is possible if, like Lyme disease, if they are born without the Borrelia in them, what happens is that when these larvae and nymphs, they like to feed on the uh, white-footed mouse we commonly have in New England or the central New York area. And if those white-footed mouse are infected with Borrelia, then during the feeding process, they take all the you know a lot of blood from the mouse and in that blood, the Borrelia is there. So, so they the enter the tick gut way. and they stay there and start an infectious cycle. And the Borrelia, is the, that's the bacteria that causes Lyme. Yes, exactly. So. All right. Let me ask you before we look in, I, I want to talk about the viral diseases caused by ticks, but do ticks do anything good for the environment? Is there like a positive to the tick? Positive to the tick? I don't think so. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the viral diseases that are tick-borne um, because... Lyme is not a virus, but there's other 
uh, tick-borne diseases that are that are of concern. So in the recent years, um, in fact, prior to the discovery of Borrelia in the 1960s, a virus was discovered in the deer tick in a Canadian town called Powassan. It's an encephalitic disease. A young boy died of this disease, and that's how they discovered this. Later, they implicated this deer tick or the, or the primary tick that transmit this virus. It was in 1960s. And for a while, this virus was kind of disappeared from the radar. And, but the beginning of 2000 to now, there is a sudden surge in this virus. And we attribute to multiple factors. Um, so that is one primary virus that I can talk about it that our lab is working. However, on top of that, uh, in the last five to six years, there are two additional viruses that have been discovered in the United States. One is Heartland virus, which was originally discovered in the state of Missouri and then bourbon virus that was discovered in, in the state of Kansas. So those are newly emerging viruses and that have been discovered in the United States. Uh, in a global scale, there are other viruses that could harm people much more dangerously, like the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus that are pres present in the you know, southern Europe and uh, Middle East, Turkey, and even some parts of Russia. They are highly dangerous with a case fatality rate of 30 to 40 percent. And another virus that was recently discovered in China, which is called severe thrombocytopenia-like syndrome virus, which is a mouthful, we call it SFTSV, that also has a case fatality rate of 30 to 40 percent. And in Europe, primarily, tick-borne encephalitis virus is also a major health concern. So the Powassan virus that I earlier did, described is actually, I call it the cousin of tick-borne encephalitis virus. So they belong to the same zero group of viruses, in North America, we call it Powassan virus. In Europe, they call it tick-borne encephalitis. But they do have different clinical outcomes. So Powassan? Powassan. Powassan. I haven't heard of that before. Um, but the deer tick, which in central New York, we're familiar with deer ticks because of Lyme disease connection. Um, so the deer tick also carries this, or potentially also carries they this. They potentially carry this, but however, at this time, we don't know which is the what is the primary reservoir for the Powassan virus. And that is something that our lab is currently trying to understand what are the primary reservoir for this virus. All right, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate microbiologist, Dr. Saravanan Thangamani, about ticks and tick-borne diseases. Um, I want to cover Lyme, too. Now, that's a little bit different because that's a bacteria, right? Yes. So uh, the deer tick is the only means of transmission? At this time, yes, deertic are the primary um, uh, Lyme disease transmitting agent in the uh, northeastern part of the United States. If you go to the California and the west part of the United States, there is another tick uh, which is called Exodus pacificus that could transmit Lyme as well. But wow. in our part, it's uh, ticks are the primary vector that transmits Lyme. So, and this is hypothetical. I don't want to scare people about the Powassan virus, but in theory, if you got bit by a deer tick that had Powassan virus, it might also have Lyme, the the Borreliella bacteria, right? So you, could you end up with both? That is an excellent question, and I think that is an excellent question that our lab is investigating for the last uh, few years, and uh, that is one reason that kind of you know attracted me from you know Galveston, Texas, to Syracuse, New York, is for me to understand these co-infection studies. So, as I mentioned earlier, the deer ticks transmit both this Borrelia and Powassan. In addition to this, two uh, germs, deer ticks carry seven other 
pathogens or bacteria and protozoans. So our lab tries to understand the co-infection, effect of co-infection of Lyme disease agent and Powassan virus. So I can give you a little bit of heads up on why it is important. As we all know that the deer tick has to stay attached to humans for up to or at least 24 hours for the Borrelia to transmit to a human, 24 to 48 hours. However, on the other side, the Powassan virus will be transmitted to the human within the first one hour of a bite. So wow. which means that when you have a co-infected tick, the virus gets in first, it primes the feeding site, and then when the Borrelia comes 24 hours later, it makes it easier for the Borrelia to infect and make the clinical outcome much worse. And that is what we are doing in the lab. So I think at this time, I would like to kind of highlight what we do in the lab. So our lab tries to understand what really happens when the tick at the feeding site of the tick because that is the only space and that is the only time the tick is delivering the germ to a human so our lab tried to understand if we can decipher what really happens at the time of the virus delivery at the time of Lyme disease agent delivery we can develop novel countermeasures to stop the transmission so we call it transmission blocking vaccine strategy and uh, we have done, we have identified several important candidates that could be used as a, a transmission blocking vaccine candidates and our lab is hopefully in the next few years we will come up with some potential product now i thought that uh, there were bug sprays with deet that would keep the ticks off does that do those not work do, they do work they do keep off but you have to keep them keep applying them you know constantly uh, every time before you leave the house to outdoors, you know, or you had to treat your clothing material with permethrin. Right. Uh, and then, to you know, but then it depends on, you know, application. You had to apply it correctly, make sure that the ticks don't bite. And if and then when you come back uh, from outdoor activities, make sure that you take shower right away and then inspect the body for any potential, you know, tick crawling on you. Ticks doesn't attach to your body right away. It takes anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour uh, for it to, you know, stay attached. It try to crawl on your skin and then try to find the perfect hiding spot and then it actually inject its, uh, you know, mouth part. Diuretics particularly has a longer mouth part, so they kind of try to latch onto it because they have to stay attached on human body for at least three to five days. So they anchor themselves very nicely. It takes about an hour minimum. So if we can, you know, as soon as we come from outdoor activities, if we can check our body, we can remove the tick, there is, I would say, 99% chance that you will not have Lyme disease or you will not acquire Lyme disease. So what you're working on, would that um, take the place of a, of a DEET spray? Would it work in concert with that or would it replace the need for a spray? Well, our work will replace the need for the spray. So our work is that the ticks would come and, stay, come and try to attach. So we call it probing, it, you know, initial stage of probing. When it tries to probe your skin to attach, what our uh, methodology that we are trying to develop is that we will have antibodies. Let's say if humans have antibodies against the tick feeding, then they will not feed on us. If they don't feed on us, we will not have any you know, disease from the ticks. So that's what we are trying to do. Neat. And uh, you've got a vector biology lab here? That's what you're working toward? Yeah, that's an exciting thing that we uh, we have just started. So at this time, when I was talking about the, the research research on Powassan virus, so Powassan virus is a highly dangerous pathogen. Right now, CDC has classified this pathogen as a biosafety level 3 agent, 
which means that it requires specific laboratory safety conditions in such a way that whatever we work doesn't get released to the environment in a safe way. And the, the personnel who work with this agent are properly trained and we have multiple door access to gain into it. All the air that comes out of this lab are HEPA filtered and then all security measures are put in in such a way that uh, none of the agent that we work inside uh, you know, gets released to the environment in a, in a bad way. So right now Upstate does not have a biocontainment level 3 laboratory so one of my responsibilities is to actually um, uh, construct and commission this laboratory so that we could work with the dangerous agents such as Powassan virus and chikungunya virus and Zika virus that uh, are mosquito borne but they are equally important to the central New York region and particularly there is another virus that is transmitted by a mosquito that is highly prevalent in the state of New York which is the West Nile virus West Nile, right. which is a level 3 agent and to work with those kind of agents to understand and develop novel measures to you know countermeasures to stop the transmission or prevent uh, the, the virus infection we need to work with them in a safe way and that is one reason that uh, SUNY system has uh, provided funds to construct this uh, vector biology laboratories and uh, we will be functional uh, from spring 2020. Then that's a uh, collaboration with Upstate and Environmental Sciences. So and this is right? part of the Center for Environmental Health and Medicine and this is a unique uh, initiative between SUNY ESF and uh, SUNY Upstate researchers. So if I want to kind of clarify, so we have excellent uh, environmental science researchers at SUNY ESF and then we have excellent infectious disease researchers at SUNY Upstate. So this particular center would hybridize these two uh, group of people, group of researchers, one an expert in environment and ecology, other an expert in infectious disease, and we are hybridizing these two groups of innovative researchers to uh, re to conduct research on ecology of infectious diseases. As we are talking about the climate change and how that is affecting all diseases, and I think this is the perfect time uh, for the SUNY system to kind of provide some initiative and funding to conduct research on this innovative ecology of infectious diseases. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with us. My guest has been upstate microbiologist Dr. Sarvanan Thangamani, the director of the Center for Environmental Health and Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, we'll hear from a doctor who helped isolate the rubella virus back in the 1960s. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
What can science and an upstate medical university graduate tell us about the power of vaccines? Today, we'll hear from Dr. Paul Parkman, one of the physician scientists who isolated the rubella virus in the early 1960s and then went on to develop an antibody test and a vaccine. Dr. Parkman is a native of Weedsport, and he recently moved back to central New York. He's with us by telephone. Thank you, Dr. Parkman. Oh, you're welcome, Amber. Now, you started your career as a doctor at Walter Reed Army Medical Center after graduating from Upstate in 1957, and then you went uh, later to serve as director of the Food and Drug Administration's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research in the late 1980s. Did you That's always correct. did you always intend to go into infectious diseases? I was uh, early on. I was in. Got. I was interested in infectious diseases. We had. Uh, my professor of pediatrics, um, he was um, instrumental in that. He he kind of uh, guided me. He had meeting, uh, you know, meetings, and uh, he was uh, very helpful in, in uh, getting me started. I wanted to ask you what you think about the current measles outbreak that's happening. Um, why have we lost control of this disease? Well, it's really hard to understand, isn't it, Amber? It's a... Uh, it is. It is. Uh, it's a shame, and it's it's, uh, it's it's really terrible that that uh, people have worked so hard to develop uh, very safe and effective vaccines, and uh, and they it's it, it's very difficult to understand why people don't use them, and. Uh, it's discouraging, but uh, people are, you know, people, and they have minds of their own, and often they make mistakes, and this measles outbreak is a big mistake. Well, as I prepared for this interview, I saw that you've said, with the exception of safe drinking water, vaccines have been the most successful medical intervention of the 20th century, but then, of yeah. course, they can't be effective if people aren't vaccinated. People don't take them, yes. So uh, it's, uh, as I say, it's, it's, uh, it's too bad. And uh, I think that people at the Center for Disease Control and people here are uh, in uh, Washington are interested in trying to quell this outbreak. But, uh, you know, it's very, measles is a very difficult, very highly infectious disease. More so than rubella, which was the thing that I worked on a lot. The disease was uh, is so infectious that you know even a brief exposure uh, to the virus uh, is, is very common that it, that it transmits, and you get a chain of transmission started that's hard, difficult to stop. The vac- vaccine is. Uh, not a scary product. It's a it's a very very safe product. It is has uh, wonderful possibilities of, of making people safe from uh, measles and and uh, so it's it's uh, sometimes it's hard to understand why people don't embrace the, a vaccination program. Now, you, your work was on rubella, which is also known as German measles, and but that's different from measles that, that we're yes. seeing today. Back in the 1800s, people were uh, just beginning to understand 
and they were so they sorted out diseases that were associated with a rash, and they found uh, there was one that was a regular measles or rubiola. That's the one we're talking about that caused the epidemic in the United States. And the other type of measles, they really just said, well, it wasn't really very much of very much uh, importance. Uh, it's um, kind of a minor rash disease. It doesn't cause any particular problem. And that was the case up until the doctor, uh, Sir McAllister Gregg, who was uh, uh, he was he was a eye doctor, and he uh, had some babies in his practice that had uh, congenital cataracts. Hmm. Well, that was a very rare, that's a rare, very rare occurrence. But he had several in his practice, and all at once. And he said, "Well, you know," he thought, thought to himself, "Well, what's what's going on?" And, he, he, he talked to the mothers, and some of the mothers said, oh, well, we had, the only thing we can think of is we had German measles uh, during our pregnancy. And so uh, he d- developed the idea that German measles caused birth defects. And uh, the most wise graybeards at the time said, oh, well, you know, that can't be there is." No, no reason for people to be, think there is uh, the illness is uh, transmitted by viruses in the baby. So, uh, but the only thing was, is he was right, and he was knighted for that. Wow! He, uh, and became Sir McAllister. Great. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Paul Parkman. Um, he's an Upstate graduate who helped isolate the rubella or German measles virus in the early 1960s. Uh, now, today, children are recommended to receive, as infants and toddlers, an MMR vaccine, which immunizes against measles, mumps, and rubella. It's a combined shot. So... If the vaccine against measles is bundled with mumps and rubella and there's a measles epidemic because of a lack of vaccinations, does that mean we're facing potential epidemics of mumps and rubella again? Well, it could be. The reason, as I said, or we said, is uh, measles is highly infectious. Uh, Mumps and rubella are less so, but it's important to to, uh, continue vaccinated because Vaccinating. If, if you don't give children the vaccines, uh, they aren't protected against these diseases. Well, let me ask you what it was like living through the rubella epidemic back in the 1960s, before it was even known to be rubella. Yeah, that was uh, in the early 1960s. That was uh, when I isolated the virus of German measles. Uh, and uh, we did. Uh, we developed a laboratory test uh, that showed you, you could use that showed you could detect the the uh, rubella virus, and uh, we developed a, a very good test, a very simple test. Uh, it was in the early '60s. There was an, uh, an enormous rubella outbreak. 
these outbreaks with German measles occurred about every maybe nine years, something like that, and uh, over the time, and uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was a bad thing to have that uh, that that, that outbreak. It caused many uh, birth defects in babies. How did the population react? Were there quarantines? I mean, were people panicking about this? Uh, no, as I uh, they they uh, there were some some uh, some a lot of concerns. The concerns, particularly when are in pregnant in women who are uh, of uh, childbearing age, because that was the that was the population that struck the that created the epidemic that caused fur. Well, once. Once you uh, had a vaccine available for rubella, was it hard to get people to accept that they should take uh, the vaccine? No, it really wasn't at that time. At this time, because people had had the experience of this rubella epidemic, you know, a few years before, and it was very fresh in people's minds. It also was also very fresh. It was also a concern. In uh, in uh, for women who were expecting to be have babies or had babies, because they were fearful of the of the fact that their their children their child might be affected. Uh, so it was uh, it German measles vaccine was very readily accepted. Uh, there was no problem in uh, nineteen whenever it was sixty. Uh, in the in the sixties, the late sixties, um, people recognize. I think people, uh, mo- most people, many people recognize the importance of it. Uh, there were uh, programs, a lot of programs that were to uh, to for vaccinating uh, the population. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, and. Uh, yeah, was it no. like, I mean, we have flu clinics these days that, you know, are available for people. It, it just yeah. makes it easier to access. Yes, yes, yes. And, and uh, so the, the, that, the fact that the epidemic that occurred, the fact that women that war were concerned about their pregnancies and their, uh, what might happen to their babies, whether they, they might get uh, uh, German measles and defects all made it easy, I think relatively easy <laughs> to convince people to go get vaccinated. So maybe it uh, just that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago and people maybe people alive today don't weren't alive then and don't remember. I think it, uh, I, that's true I, and people are not you know, fearful of all of these, uh, you know, when I grew up, I had uh, measles, mumps, rubella. Children in my neighborhood had polio. Uh, people were very aware of the problems these diseases caused. And somehow that gets washed out with the years so that people say, well, you know, I don't need to have get vaccinated because... Uh, there's very little of that around, so why should I have to worry about it? 
that's not right. That's, that's incorrect thinking. Well, I'm really grateful that you uh, are telling us about this. Thank you for for uh, being on HealthLink on air. My guest has been Upstate graduate, Dr. Paul Parkman. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Linda Parsons is a poet and playwright whose most recent poetry collection is called This Shaky Earth. She has two poems in this issue that describe beneficent companions who help us get through illnesses and dignities. Her first poem is called Wayfinder. Wandering the maze of hospital corridors to see a new doctor, I'm past pregnant trimesters and hoped-for heartbeat, that blessed whoosh-whoosh, past even the iron-red tide. I know what's ahead. Chill speculum, snap of latex glove, heels tense in the stirrups. At the information desk, I see my neighbor, bright and ready to herd me, a lost sheep, to building A, not B, The elevator opens as she says, I'm a wayfinder. My job is to take you where you need to be. A doctor's muffled confessional bleeds through the wall as I wait. The anointing of family oil, depression, alcoholism, cardiovascular event, colon and breast cancer, melanoma. History coming as it comes, untreatable, snowblind, hooded for the last clean shot. I wait am waiting still for the downrush of storied wings, folded or outspread, for the wayfinder whose job is to lead me back to whatever blessing is possible through the whoosh of doors that, despite my errancy, open. And her second poem is called Therapy Dog. Leafed out like a blood-good maple in my meditation chair, my focus ungainly over flagstone and sedum, downpour of emotion, Feet flat to the cold, I am alone with intention. The mindful bell conditions his coming, as others are called in the wake of smoldering disaster, when buildings quake and crumble, papery hands grasp the long-forgotten, when a child wounded in the unspeakable places cannot say where or how. Come the herders and retrievers, velveteen with hot breath, to unjangle nerves in courtrooms, sniff out grand mal and stealth of dying, when the smoke and wail clear and those left living lift their dark glasses for the first time since falling so far, so fast, stash their canes in the closet. In the daily mantra of Meta comes snowy blaze to soften wrongs and lay back ears for a sweet lick of spoon. Come, shawl my ankles, wet nose to knee, both taproot and compass for my strain. No matter whence, no matter where, come.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an expert discusses cystic fibrosis. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. For listening.